Please join me in your Bibles this morning. Uh, we're taking a brief break from our Revelation series, so I invite you to turn to Isaiah. We're going to be studying Isaiah. You can turn to chapter 1 in Isaiah. Today we're going to be reading verses 1 through 20. It's on page 566 if you're using the Bibles in front of you. And as we prepare to hear God's Word read aloud and preached, let's pause again to ask God's blessing on our time together. Almighty God, we praise you and thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. Your word says that uh, it's your voice uh, that makes the oaks to shake, and in your temple all cry glory. And so we're gathered in your midst today, and I pray that through your spirit you would speak. Give illumination to the preaching of your word and the reading of your word so that each of us could hear you speaking to our hearts so that we all would be able to cry glory as we reflect on the hope that we have in Christ and the glory of the incarnation. We wonder at this and we long anticipate to commune with you this morning. God, attend to us now. Speak to us. Let us hear your voice. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hear God's holy word from Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts? 
I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've made it. Uh, we're now back in the Advent season, uh, and I don't know about you, but after a long year, I find it always comforting uh, to kind of come home to Advent. Everything uh, feels comforting, uh, and our hearts are full of anticipation as we enter into a familiar season uh, with familiar songs, familiar rituals. Everything feels full, including our calendars. Our hearts aren't the only things that are full. Our, our schedules are pretty full, too, as everything kind of comes up right against that December 31st deadline. We all feel crunch time. I was talking to some of the staff here at church, and we were, this was back in November. Uh, late November, we were trying to figure out when the next time we could all get together was, and we decided probably best not to even try in December. Uh, let's just wait until January. And so this is my annual Advent dilemma. Uh, I, I have such high expectations for the season, such high spiritual hopes, and, and yet everything seems so busy that I can't quite slow down to appreciate it. There are the good things, the Christmas parties, gatherings with friends, Christmas performances, the playlists that you want to listen to, the books that you know you want to accomplish by the end of the year, those great Advent devotionals that you've acquired over the, over the times, and the new ones that just keep coming out. These are the good things that fill up our lives. But there are the hard things, too. The hard things that the Christmas season just seems to amplify. And so family trials and health struggles, and strained relationships that are easier to cope with back in June, they loom larger during the Advent season, as if, as if all the hope that we should be feeling makes our pain stand out all the more. 
And so these are the emotions of Advent. It's what the poet George Herbert called sour, sweet days. Sour, sweet days, a holy anticipation, and yet God seems just out of reach. What a season, then, to wait for a king. To, to wait and long for a king who can make this broken world what it was meant to be so that our sour, sweet days become always and only sweet in the light of God's presence. That's our Advent hope, and that's the message of the book of Isaiah. This great story right in the middle of our Bibles is a story of prophetic hope. Through 66 chapters, Isaiah gradually unfolds God's promises to a waiting, suffering people, the king will come. God's royal Messiah will come to save. And so that makes Isaiah a perfect Advent book because it's full of promises that point us directly to Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God. And so because it's such a big book and so worthy of our attention, we're going to take our time with it. Beginning this year, this Advent, uh, we're going to take the next three Advents and Christmases to explore this monumental book of hope. And we're not going to be able to cover every nook and cranny. I, I think you should think of it a little bit more like a helicopter tour of a massive mountain. Or we're going to get dropped off in a certain location, and we're going to hike around a little bit and see some sights, and then we're going to get back into the helicopter and move a little bit higher up. But it's my prayer that over the next three years, as we linger in Isaiah, that we'll have time to slow down and to appreciate and experience the good news of Christmas, beginning with our Advent dilemma, a feeling of distance from God. Isaiah chapter 1 begins with distance. The people are in crisis. They've been attacked by an enemy, either the Syrians who teamed up with their enemies from the north in 735 B.C., or the Assyrian Empire that swooped in and attacked in 701 B.C. We're not sure which one. It doesn't really matter because the situation is the same. It's bleak. Verses 7 through 9 describe a scene of complete desolation, burning cities, foreign invaders who are eating up all the food from the land, intense vulnerability, Verse 8, the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field. In ancient Israel, all the farmers lived in cities, and the cities were sort of surrounded by fields. And so at harvest time, the farmers would leave their cities, and they would go out into the fields where they would live in these tiny temporary shelters so that they could be closer to their crops and to do their work. That's the image here. You can picture a field that's already been harvested, stripped of all its food, so just some lonely stalks coming up from the land, and then dotting the landscape are just these few lonely, abandoned shacks exposed to the elements, no protection around them. They're totally alone. Verse 9 says that they've been reduced to 
a few survivors, and they would have been completely wiped out had the Lord not intervened at the last minute. These people are far from God. And even worse, they're far from God in spite of intense religious activity. Verses 11 through 15 describe all kinds of things that they're doing. Burnt offerings, sacrifices of rams, bulls, lambs, goats, well-fed beasts, new moon, Sabbath, convocations, dedicated feasts, prayers to the Lord. They are not lacking in religious effort. It's just that their religious effort is doing nothing to bring God nearer to them or to bring them closer to God. Why? I'm sure that's the question they were wondering. Why? Why is there distance between us and God? Verses 2 through 4 answer the question. The people are entrenched in sin. Verse 2, the children have rebelled against their heavenly father. Verse 3, Israel does not know their covenant Lord. Not, a, not in the sense of forgetting a fact, but forsaking a relationship. Uh, verse 4, Isaiah raises a lament. He says, ah, woe, alas, sinful nation, a people laden, heavy with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. It's a thesaurus of sin. Rebellion. Iniquity. Evildoing. Corruption. Forsaking. Despising God. Things have gotten so bad for Israel that Isaiah compares them directly to the ancient paradigm of sin and judgment. Chapter 10, he's talking to the people of Israel and the rulers of the people of Israel, but he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. In terms of sin and faithlessness, Israel was exactly like them. And it's probably worth noting that Isaiah's critique transcends the realm of sexual ethics. When we hear those two cities, I think that's where we tend to go. Uh, we tend to think exclusively about that. But as Alec Motyer puts it, these two cities were a symbol of sin as an accepted lifestyle. Sin as an accepted lifestyle. Any sin, not just one kind of sexual sin. And so by calling the Israelites people of Gomorrah, Isaiah tells them in no uncertain terms, you are entrenched in sin, and therefore, verse 4, they are utterly estranged. And this is our first Advent truth. Sin distances us from God. Sin distances us from God. Uh, we heard that already in the scripture from Romans chapter 3. And we confessed it this morning already. What is the misery of that estate into which man fell? 
all mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God and are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all miseries of this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. That is a comprehensive statement, isn't it? And and our, our souls, our bodies feel the truth of it. Our personal sins burden us with guilt and with shame, causing us to hide from the Lord like our first parents did. And then our our societal sins of injustice and oppression and wickedness cause suffering and bring God's wrath and judgment upon the nations. And then the general miseries of this life tempt us to think that God does not care. Sin distances us from God, even if you're doing all the right religious practices. Just like the people of Israel, we can do all the right things on paper. We can go to church, read the Bible, even pray, and yet if we are entrenched in sin, God will not have any of it. Listen to how vehemently he rejects their worship. Verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. In other words, he can't stand it when his people gather for worship earnestly while at the same time actively walking in sin. Because worship is not some magical incantation meant to appease a distant God. Worship is supposed to be an expression of a relationship. And God is not pleased with our actions of worship if our hearts are far from him. Sin distances us from God. But sin doesn't have the last word. Grace does. God pursues restoration with his people. Listen to the flow of thought in verses 15 and 16. He says, I will not listen to your prayers because your hands are full of blood, meaning that they were so guilty of sin and oppression, it was like they were murderers. They had blood guilt all over them. So he says, I'm I'm not going to listen to your prayers because your hands are full of blood, but that doesn't end the story. God goes on to say, wash yourselves. Your, Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Go make yourselves clean. It's like a parent who discovers a child at the dinner table with filthy hands. A loving parent is not going to say, your hands are gross, go away and never come back. A loving parent will say, go wash your hands and then come back and join us for dinner. God is telling the people that there is hope for them to come back into his presence. But what does he mean, wash yourselves? Make yourselves clean. Isn't that bad theology? Can we actually take care of our sin problem on our own? No, that's not what God is saying. This washing that he's encouraging here 
This washing can only be the washing of repentance and faith. In Leviticus, we heard lots about washing rituals. If you were ceremonially unclean, you could wash, and then you could come back into God's presence. That's the liturgical backdrop to God's command right here. But God is after more than mere ceremony. These people were already quite busy with religious ceremonies, and God has just said that none of it's working. So this washing that God's talking about has got to be more than mere human effort. It can only be uh, the washing of repentance. Like we hear in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, where David's sin has caused a rift between him and God so bad that no sacrifice could repair it. There was no ceremonial solution to David's sin. And so the only hope that he had was to throw himself on God's mercy and beg, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So yes, God says in this passage, wash yourselves because he's encouraging them, urging them to take action, to take responsibility for their condition at that point in time. But at the end of the day, the actual cleansing is only something that God himself can provide. It's what the Apostle Paul will later call in the Bible the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. So God is calling them to spiritual renewal, where his word pricks their hearts and causes them to fall on their faces in repentance, asking for grace. However, these Israelites that the Lord is speaking to, they're very familiar with treacherous leaders. Treacherous leaders who would always go back on their word, breaking their promises. And so these Israelites might wonder, if we forsake all these other practices that we're doing to try to keep us safe, to try to give us some measure of comfort in this life, if we turn from our sin, what's going to actually happen? What's the outcome actually going to be? And that's why God responds in verse 18, "'Come now, let us reason together.'" Uh, Come, let us us talk together about the outcomes of your actions. Those your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He is assuring them of his promise of grace. Their garments, so to speak, were so deeply stained by the crimson blood of their iniquity, they couldn't do anything about it for themselves. But if they would only return to him, God would so thoroughly cleanse them, so thoroughly wash them that their spiritual garments would shine like new. And that's our second Advent truth. Sin distances us from God, but God offers grace. And that grace 
points directly to Jesus Christ. I love uh, that Westminster Shorter Catechism 19 ultimately gives way to question 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Answer, no. God delivered his people out of the estate of sin and misery and brought them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. Jesus Christ, who cleanses us from our sins through his blood. Revelation 7.14 takes up this image of a spiritual cleansing. And it says that the saints have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, in Jesus' blood. It's a fulfillment of this promise in Isaiah chapter 1. Unlike the blood of iniquity, which brings moral stain upon our souls, the blood of Christ removes those stains, uh, removing our guilt, removing our shame, restoring us into God's presence absolutely pure. And this is the great Advent hope for us, that grace will triumph over sin so that we don't need to fear God's judgment anymore. Like, like John prayed for us at the beginning of our service, if we have welcomed Jesus as our Redeemer, we don't need to fear him when he comes again as our judge. Because the King is coming. Jesus is on his way. That's what the story of Advent is all about, us longing for Christ's second coming as we remember his first coming. And if you are wondering this morning, how is Jesus going to receive me when he shows up again? The answer is clear. The text promises us a welcome of grace if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior. If you have believed in Jesus, then though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. And though they are red as crimson, they'll become like wool. Sin distances us from God, but God offers grace. And that grace gives us the hope for communion. We heard that enticing word in the catechism. What's the first thing that we lost in the fall? Communion with God. And we've been longing for that to be restored ever since. That's what we really want. We don't want a spiritual ceasefire where God maybe forgives us from our sin but then still holds us at arm's length. We want to be fully embraced by God as our Father so that we can enjoy his presence to the fullest of our capacity. And whether we admit it or not, this fundamental desire for communion with God shows up in every single one of our other smaller desires this season. Whether it's at the shopping mall or the toy store or the Amazon wish list, whatever we're longing for, there's something rooted in that longing for God. As Abigail uh, Favale reminds us, there is a holy side to every longing. And so that Lego catalog that came in the mail, 
or that Target flyer that maybe you picked up in the store that's full of toys, it discloses a spiritual secret for those with eyes to see. We want God. We want joy. We want bliss that won't break down or fall apart or run out of batteries. We want communion. And that's the end result of God's grace. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Your existence in the land will be a pleasure. There's not going to be any enemies to overtake you anymore. Food's going to be plentiful, and most importantly, you will enjoy the presence of God in your life. That is communion. And the recipe for communion and for growing in communion is actually pretty simple. Reflect, repent, and practice Christian love. That's how we can grow in communion during this Advent season, our communion with the Lord. Reflect, repent, and practice Christian love. First, reflect. Verse 2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord. Give ear to the teaching, to the Torah of our God. Every Israelite would recognize this language. It's the same language as the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Israel's foundational creed. Hear, O Israel. And what are they supposed to hear? They're supposed to hear about God and their destiny with him and their responsibilities as his people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. It's a call for reflection. Then verses 16 and 17, God says, cease to do evil, learn to do good. It's, a, it's another memory of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5.1, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them so that you could be careful to do them. Learning leads to obedience. And learning depends on memory, a spiritual memory of who God is. Because as verse 2 already told us, Israel's problem was not that they never knew God. Their problem was that they forgot. And so these verses call God's people to remember and reflect on God's truth so that God's truth permeates their entire lives. And, and he's calling you this morning to do the very same thing. The Puritan preacher Matthew Henry says it this way, Not considering what we do know in religion does as much harm as ignorance of what we should know. Let me read that one more time. Not considering what we do know in religion does as much harm as ignorance of what we should know. And so consider what you do know. Consider what you know about God and about yourselves. And Isaiah chapter 1 gives us 
Some reminders. God is a holy God who demands obedience, demands righteousness. And yet he is so loving and merciful that he's willing to give himself to his people in grace. Verse 1 calls him the Holy One of Israel. The, The Holy One of Israel, meaning that the Holy One of the heavens has given himself, covenanted himself to this one people in a gift and relationship of grace. And that relationship is brought out all the more in verses 2 through 4. If we look past all of those dramatic words reminding us of the different dynamics of sin, we hear language of deep relationship, sonship in God. We hear about a nation, a people, offspring, children. Verse 8 calls them the daughter of Zion. We're... We're God's kids. And in the center of that relationship between us and God is Jesus. Jesus shows us God's righteousness. And Jesus shows us God's self-giving, adopting grace. At the incarnation, what we're celebrating this season, Jesus shows us that he became poor so that we could become rich. And then at the cross, Jesus gave his life as a gift for us so that we could live. Through Jesus, we become children of God. These are life-changing truths for us to reflect on. They demand reflection. To quote Alec Motyer again, justification by faith is not a Sunday truth bearing only on our relationship with God, but also a Monday truth for the conduct of life in all its challenges. And we could take it one step further that justification by faith is also an Advent truth because it teaches us why Jesus came in the first place. And so this Advent, reflect on what you know and let that boost your Christmas spirit. Reflect. Second, repent. It doesn't matter how much Christmas activity you throw yourself into, you will not have a satisfying season if you're stuck in sin. Sin wrecks our communion with God, our our enjoyment of our Heavenly Father, and the path forward is repentance. Later on in chapter 1, Isaiah writes that Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent. So we, we, we need to look at our lives and ask, where has sin become an accepted lifestyle? Where in your life is sin an accepted lifestyle? Where are you so used to sin that you hardly even recognize it as sin anymore? Now that'll take some time to answer that question. Maybe the the Lord is bringing some of those things to mind. We certainly need the Holy Spirit's help to figure out in our life uh, where we have sin as this accepted lifestyle. And we probably need the help of other people who are around us with frequency and can speak into our lives. It'll take time, but once you identify that sin and give it a name, then turn from it. And turn to Christ. Repent this Advent season. 
And if you're worried that all of this talk and focus on sin is going to turn you into a Christmas Grinch, then take comfort in these words by Tim Keller. The more accepted and loved in the gospel we feel, the more and more often we will be repenting. Repentance flows out of our communion with God. And it assists our growth in communion with God. The more that you reflect, then the more you're going to see your sin. And the more you're going to want to repent. But you're going to repent confident that God will be gracious to you. Reflect. Then repent. And finally, practice Christian love. Practice Christian love. Verse 17, seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause for powerful commands to reverse the societal sins of oppression and exclusion. Speak up for those without a voice. Ensure that the poor are taken care of. Guarantee that the vulnerable are safe. This is Christian love, not just asking the scroogey question, what is the minimum that I owe these people, but asking instead, what can I give them because I've been given so much already? Here again, the gospel is the key. The gospel is central to Christian love. Old Testament scholar Barry Webb writes that the cross The cross places us under a far greater obligation to love than the Old Testament law ever could. And so, this Advent season, grab a few of your friends or family members and seek justice. Correct oppression. Practice Christian love for the people in our society that our society casts out and runs right over. Serve the homeless. Visit a retirement home and sing some carols. Write to someone who's suffering in prison. Give generously to someone in need. These are ways, the possibilities, endless. When we look at the world through the lens of grace, when you reflect on Christ's love for you. And then when you experience Christ's love, when you repent and feel accepted by him again, then you will be inspired to practice Christian love for other people, which will then drive you back to Jesus. It's all one engine moving towards communion. This is the third Advent truth. Grace empowers communion with God. And so the way through the annual Advent dilemma is simply this, enjoy grace. This Advent season, enjoy grace. I carry each week, I carry my sermon to church in this folder. I got it at a church when I was out of town Uh, visiting a friend, and it it just says, if you can't read it, it just says, enjoy grace. And I love it. Uh, So every Sunday morning when I pull out my sermon from my bag, I get to read, enjoy grace. It's just a small reminder to me uh, that this is God's invitation every Sunday morning. He's called us here 
not to condemn us. He's called us here so that we can enjoy grace. And that's his calling to you during this Advent season, this season of longing and distraction. Enjoy grace. Reflect on the grace of the incarnation, even if it's just for a couple of minutes a day. Reflect on your sins and and then freely admit them to God, savoring the grace of pardon. And then share grace with others as you practice Christian love. And then, even if you can't do it that much, even if you reach Christmas morning feeling a bit frazzled, a bit worn out, feeling a bit sour sweet, enjoy grace. Because your Advent activity does not save you. No matter how well-meaning it may be, all of your Advent work will not save you does not save you, Jesus does for free. Justification by faith is a gift that you can enjoy. Sin distances us from God, but God offers grace, and grace empowers communion with God. That's how we can wait for the coming king well. Enjoy grace until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you offer us grace that leads to communion. Uh, It reverses the thing that we lost. It reverses our distance from you. Lord, as as we hear your word, um, hear our cry, our cry for mercy, hear our longings, um, often hidden, and obscured by our longings for other things. But, but Lord, underneath all of those longings for other things is a, a pure, holy longing for you. Would you, O oh God, be found this Advent season? Would you be near to us who are broken and long for your presence? Would you be gracious to us so that we can experience the pleasure of reflecting on you, even in the midst of a very, very full season. Give us grace to experience you, to enjoy communion with you, enjoy grace as we worship you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.